1886, near today's city of Johannesburg, a man called George Harrison discovered gold, changing South Africa forever. At the heart of South African history is a rush for minerals that time and time again has made a few people extremely wealthy and changed the lives of millions. And the time of the rush to the mines isn't over. For example, in the Karoo between Johannesburg and Cape Town. Based on massive scale prospecting in the area, ENCA asked the question in March. Is uranium mining in the Karoo South Africa's new gold? This podcast is the third in the four-part series, Nuclear SA. It's called Uranium Rush, and it is our attempt to find out what's going on in the Karoo. My name is Sheba Melissa Mazaza, and Dashin Moodley has the story. Four is in here. Six. Eight. It's going as planned. Here is number 10, Yellow House. This is reporter and Rasmus Beats. Number 12, here we go. He's on the last few hundred meters of a long drive from Cape Town to Beaufort West and in South Africa's Karoo. The Karoo landscape is dominated by orange and brownish rocks, low vegetation and flat top mountains that rise like islands in a sea that's no longer there. It's huge, the size of Germany, but sparsely populated, with both people and animals well adapted to dust and these dry, sunny days. Beaufort West and the rest of the Karoo is farmland, and its most famous brand is Karoo lamb. But maybe that's about to change. Because if one is to believe local industry, the politicians, the newly arrived businessmen, and earlier media reports, the next big thing in Beaufort West and all over the Karoo is uranium. Five companies are currently applying for prospecting and mining rights covering more than 750,000 hectares. In spite of this, the debate about uranium mining has been almost entirely absent from the national media. And locally, the focus has mainly been on what the mining companies will bring to the Karoo. The mining companies are promising jobs. And for this promise, the former mayor, Edward Njado, earlier welcomed the mining companies, and it seemed the mining adventure was a done deal. As a municipality, we would welcome the development of mining within the Central Karoo, because we believe that that will definitely uh, address the unemployment. But the roads around Beaufort West are not yet crowded with trucks loaded with uranium ore, and Edward Njado is no longer the mayor. Slowly but surely, opposition to uranium mining in the Karoo is mounting. When the train comes, you must be on the station. I'd rather be not on the station, man. And let the train never come. Because after the train is away, this is going to be a wanted land. This is Billy Steenkamp, a local activist opposed to the mining operation. 
He's a fit retiree who welcomes our reporter with lemonade and ice cubes in his lounge. Hello. Morning, morning. Okay, I'm Balistian Kampa. I'm born and bred in the Karoo. And I'm also activist for the Koi Koi and the, and the, and the Sun, the Bushman people. I get, I get involved because of the water. The fact that water is a main concern will come as no surprise for anyone who's been to the Karoo. It's dry here. And the 160mm annual rainfall around Beaufort West is less than a third of what falls in Johannesburg. Uranium mining requires lots of water. The proposed central processing plant in Beaufort West has applied for a license to use 1.4 billion litres of water annually. That's more than 80% of what the entire town uses today. And Billy Steenkamp doesn't believe there's enough to go around. And even now, the, the dam, I think it is 32% full. Or even less. Aside from the amounts of water used, Billy Steenkamp is also afraid the mining companies don't have a safe way of getting rid of the contaminated water used in the mining process. They don't even answer how are they going to expose of that water. Because if they expose of the water by just getting rid of it, it's going to sew down and it is going, the, 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 the underground water, it is going to contaminate them. And at the end of the day, we who remain here is going to suffer. When they make their buck, they are on their way to somewhere else. For Billy Steenkamp, the fight for water goes well beyond Beaufort West and South Africa. The koi from the Karoo and Native Americans at Standing Rock in the US find themselves bound together in a struggle to promote First Peoples' rights. I stand with the people of Dakota. I stand with them. It's not just the fight against uranium that's gone international. The forces that have set the wheels in motion to start digging in the Karoo have as well. The biggest mining company involved in the Karoo is Australian, and its main shareholders are international banks like Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, and HSBC. Big financial players, in other words, that are betting on a new demand for uranium even though the market price at the moment is at a 10-year low. It doesn't seem like a good business opportunity, unless you consider the Russians. Well, Russia doesn't have much of a uranium on their own territory. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of a bit surprising when you look at the map. This is Vladimir Slavyak, head of the Russian environmental NGO EcoDefense. In South Africa, he's better known for leaking a copy of the so-called procurement deal between South Africa and Russia. And he believes that uranium mining in the Karoo is closely linked with Russia's nuclear expansion plans. In the past times, like in the Soviet times, uranium was mostly coming from other republics of the Soviet Union, not from Russia itself. 
So today Rosatom is uh, actually looking way, very much for, uh, you know, new deposits of uranium and uh, they see Africa as uh, promising and uh, they've got a plan of expansion in Africa and um, part of this plan is uh, to build uh, different facilities in uh, South Africa and then do the expansion uh, for the rest of the continent. According to Vladimir Slavyak, the so-called procurement deal outlining the construction of several massive nuclear power plants by Russia in South Africa is a major component of Russia's ambitions. And so too, says Vladimir, is uranium mining. How that works, we'll return to later. And for now, travel deeper into the Karoo. Because in spite of activist police Stienkamp, Beaufort West hasn't become central to the fight against uranium mining. The center of resistance, if such a center exists, is rather 204 kilometers to the east in the small town of Khrafranet. In the middle of the monochrome Karoo, the town is an explosion of color. Pink, blue, red and yellow flowers spilling into the jacaranda-lined streets that all seem to lead to some kind of attraction. If you came from Cape Town, you came in on this road, and this is your landmark, the church. You saw the big church? Okay. Uh, let me start off by saying we've got the um, biggest export taxidermy in the Southern Hemisphere. Do you know what a taxidermy is? Where they stuff the animal and some of the guests say that it's the highlight of their visit to Groningen. I know it's a little bit off-putting to international people. And then right up here, very close to us, just around the corner is Obisa. Obisa is the biggest export uh, cactus nursery on the planet. No, not, not just anywhere, the planet. But our reporter has come for neither these stuffed animals or cacti. He's here to talk to Dr. Stefan Kramer, a German geologist who's made it his mission to stop uranium mining in the Karoo. Dr. Kramer is both a scientist and an activist. And he's also been called a foreign agent. With his thick white hair and beard, round glasses and practical clothes, he looks more like a nerdy leftist grandfather. Can you give me the ultra-short 300 million year history of the Karoo as we're standing here in your garden looking at it? Absolutely. It's very simple. You see three different rock types in these horizontal layers just over there at the mountainside. We see the prominent escarpments and cliffs of sandstone. That is the only rock which actually carries a little bit of uranium in the Karoo. Then all the flat areas or the sloping areas are actually shales, uh, which are very brittle and so they don't really are very prominent. And on top of it, all mountains in the Karoo are topped by a thin layer of dolerite, an intrusive rock formation, which has actually fracked the entire Karoo. Dr. Stefan Kramer works for SAFSI, the Southern African Faith Communities Environmental Institute. He originally came to South Africa to fight against fracking. 
But after analysing the geology of the Karoo, he came to the conclusion that fracking wasn't likely to happen anytime soon. Uranium mining, however, was a totally different story. The Australian mining company which did the exploration in the Karoo was able to sail safely below the radar screen and completely without any public debate was able to finalize its exploration campaign. They have drilled thousands of boreholes and intercepted a lot of uranium ores. So while fracking is still light years away, uranium mining is just around the corner. And that's why I believe it's a much bigger, more imminent and more long-lasting threat to the Karoo than shale gas itself. So far, the only actual mining taking place are two small trial mines. But what's in store is on another level. The biggest individual mine site that's been planned so far is a series of open pits more than 70 kilometers long. It would be the biggest man-made structure on the African continent and visible from space, 100 meters deep a maximum and a kilometer wide or so. To, in order to do that, it would create large, huge amounts of nuclear waste, plus um, a very deep drawdown on the groundwater because open pits have to be permanently uh, pumped out, otherwise groundwater and rainwater would collect in them. That in turn leads to a lowering of the regional groundwater over hundreds of square kilometers of Karoo felt, which would be the end of vegetation and therefore agriculture because plants would no longer find groundwater to grow with. Farmers in the areas are up in arms because that is the end of their uh, livelihoods and their farm workers' livelihoods. And that is just one mine site. We know that the company has uh, identified 750,000 hectares of central Karoo farmlands for uh, prospecting and for um, mining. And while this operation is huge in scale, and Tasman the local version of Australian Peninsula Mining, is by far the biggest company, it seems to be just the beginning. As we speak, there are new companies coming up every week now who are um, applying for other slices of the Karoo for uranium prospecting. Just this week, there is a new company called Blue Moon Mining. There are new applications colorful company to say the least with the name of Wealth Age House of Capital, a completely unknown fly-by-night company from Limpopo has applied and each week as I said there are new applications. We are seeing the beginning of a uranium rush. Stefan Kramer says that although uranium is radioactive and dangerous, it's actually not the uranium itself that's the biggest problem with uranium mining. The industry will tell us that uranium itself isn't that dangerous. It's toxic, yes, and it's a bit radioactive, but not overly so. It's not a big concern, but it's the daughter products, the decay products of uranium, which are particularly of concern. And I will not take you through the entire a decay chain because that's highly technical and but there are some names which we recognize quickly for example radium is a mineral uh, an element which is highly radioactive highly toxic much more dangerous than 
the uranium itself. It then decays into radon, another household name for many people. The most toxic final product of this uranium decay is an element called polonium. That is a most toxic substance on Earth and it was used on a Russian spy taking refuge in the UK, Mr. Levchenko, who was then poisoned by his own spy services by putting just a microgram of that material into his cup of tea and he died a very miserable death. So the decay products, that's the message here of uranium mining, are more dangerous than the uranium itself. When it rains, which is rare in the Karoo, it can pour. Small creeks and even dry land quickly transform into raging rivers. If a flash flood hits a uranium mine, Stefan's afraid of it contaminating waterways. The contaminated water could end up 300 kilometers away in the Indian Ocean. And then, of course, there's the dust. In this picture here, which I'm just presenting here, it's a picture from a uranium mine in uh, Russia. It has been just blasted and a darkish, grayish cloud hangs over this mine just after blasting. And that's the whole story because when you dig up uranium ore in the Karoo, it means a very dry place, a very soft rock, and that creates dust by necessity. And if that dust is now laced with uranium and its radioactive daughter products, it carries the deadly contamination across the Karoo. Every child, every farmer in the Karoo knows how far dust can travel. Farmers in the area are starting to organize against the mining, they're keeping an eye out for mining activities and updating each other in a WhatsApp group. The tourism industry and conservationists are worried about the impact on the fragile ecosystem. And their concerns are starting to make it into the local newspapers and council meetings. But are they even right? Will uranium mining damage their livelihood, their environment and their health? We wanted a second opinion. Our reporter Ryan Brown visited a geologist in Johannesburg. Uh, my name is Bertus Smith. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer at the Department of Geology of the University of Johannesburg. Um, my main research interest, broadly speaking, is economic geology, but mostly focused on uh, ore genesis, uh, understanding ore deposits, um, how they formed and what they look like. Um, but I do it mostly out of pure academic interest. Uh, I'm in no way directly affiliated with any mining, uh, although we do get funding from mining companies to do the research. Is it possible to do uranium mining, possible and or likely to, that you could do uranium mining in a, in a much safer way? Because one of the things that activists out in the Karoo say is that um, it's really unlikely that you'd be able to control how this dust with uranium in it is mobilized, where it goes. During flash floods, it could get in the water, carry mm -hmm. down in the, you know, through the water stream as far as PE. It could get in the air and then get onto crops, be ingested by livestock. Mm. Um, it, it, it's important to raise these concerns. It, it, it absolutely is because you have to always assume there is a chance that something like that might happen and you have to try and plan to minimize this. Especially in the Karoo where 
it's a very dry place, but sometimes when it does rain, it, it, you know, as you say, you can get flash floods. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of uranium will end up in the water that way. The, the problem is the, the, the aqueous geochemistry of uranium is such that it is, it, it will, it will, some of it will go into solution in the water. It's easily dissolved in oxidizing conditions at relatively low temperatures. Um, it's impossible to 100% fully control these things, but if the legislation's in place, if there's a will to do this, if people don't cut corners, um, it will improve the likelihood of successfully mining safely. But that, that's a lot all, of conditions, though. Of course it is. So the inevitable risk related to uranium mining can be minimized if the companies are vigilant no corners are cut, and the authorities perform their duties. Surely, the mining companies would like to reassure the public of this? The biggest mining company involved in the Karoo is Tasman. Okay, sorry, sorry, sir. We are not allowed to comment on the journalists. Uh... Okay, look, I'm, I'm not senior enough to talk to you. Without direct answers from Tasman Mining, we can't possibly know how seriously they take their responsibility for mining safely. But what we can do is try to find out what the stakes are. Because ultimately, whether mining in the crew makes sense comes down to a simple question that isn't all that simple to answer. Is it worth it? At the one side of that equation is what uranium mining can give the companies in terms of profits and the community in terms of taxes, jobs and economic development. We'll get to that shortly, but not before visiting the other side of that equation, the one where things go wrong. Johannesburg's towering mine dumps rise from the city in every direction, like man-made mountains with toxic yellow sand filling with the scraps of decades of gold mining. Today, most of the mines that made Johannesburg Africa's richest city are gone. But that hasn't stopped tens of thousands of people every year from pouring into the city in search of a better life. On the West Rand, just outside the city, a few hundred of those migrants have settled at a place called Tudorshaft. It's an orderly town of shacks that's penned in on three sides by mine dams and on the fourth by an active gold mine. Every time the wind kicks up, dust from the dams blows directly into these houses, into the crops and onto the water. As we drive into the community, a protest is underway. Black smoke from burning tires, marking where young men are building barricades. Rocks, metal pipes, and anything heavy enough to block traffic is dumped. People are protesting because the government has promised for years to get them out of here and onto safer ground, but many still remain. Just uh, doing these tires because of this relocation is for us to do charge, but we see that our councillor is not taking us seriously. This place is not a good place for people to stay. We're here to meet community activist and former resident, Sofelo Sylvia Barnard, who moved away from Tudor Shaft eight years ago 
after having lived for three years directly on top of the yellow tailings. Many people greet her as we walk through the area to where she used to live with her children. So the, the thing we're standing on right now, what, what do people call this? Ah, uh, this is the yellow tailings. Yellow tailings. And every, yes. if you ask anyone here where yellow tailings oh, is... Oh, no, no, no. The other people, they just call it the yellow soil. And, and are people afraid of this spot? Yes, they are afraid. Because now they get lots of information. This is very dangerous. Before, there was like a normal place to stay. And so when you were living here... Was it, was it, were there a lot more people? Hello. Yes, it was lots of people. Lots, plenty. And a lot of children? Mm. Where, where are those children today? Because there's not many here. No, they're children. They already... They, you know what they've been doing the time they start children? Okay, they've been taking people, those they've got kids. So they were moved first? Yes. Knowledge of the dangers of living on the yellow soil largely comes from Sylvia herself. Well, you were the first person to tell me. Yes. That. And what was what was it like when you told them? It was, it's like, no, you are lying. Even the municipality, they've been said, I'm lying. I don't tell the people true story. So the people thought you were lying. Yes. And how did you convince them? I asked them, okay, guys, why kids? Lots of our kids, they've got. They've got skin problems. If it was not that, why our kids are suffering but the other kids are not? Part of her job and activism is informing the community of what she suspected was wrong when she lived in the area herself. The time I go that side, I see there is different of soil because topsoil is red in color, but that one is yellow. So one day I invite Mariette, I say, Mariette, will you please come to my place, see what's going on. The Mariette that Sylvia refers to is Mariette Lifferink, CEO of the Federation for a Sustainable Environment. It's an NGO working for safer mining in Africa. And Sylvia convinced her to come out to Tudor Shaft to test the soil that she and others were living on. And Mariette say no. Let me taste the test and go to, to test the soil and tell you what's going on. And then Maria take this test and we do the research. We found out this area is not safe at all and is high ra- radioactive. The request from Sylvia eventually led the two of them joining forces in fighting the health risks experienced by people living next to the mine dumps. And there are many as Mariette explains. All these metals, whether it's manganese, aluminium, arsenic, uh, cobalt, copper, nickel, zinc, all of these, besides uranium, have chemically toxic properties. Uranium also is chemically toxic besides being radioactive. So there are many health risks. Risks like uh, endocrine-disrupting compounds, risk of transgenerational impacts. It it can affect the neural development of the fetus, which may result in uh, in mental retardation. There may be pulmonary illnesses, sinusitis, burning of the eyes, skin skin, uh, lesions, cancers. Uh, All of these uh, are risks that these communities are exposed to. There's been no thorough study of the effects of living next to mine dumps, but the Federation for a Sustainable Environment 
is now working on a report commissioned by the WHO. Sylvia, however, doesn't need to wait for a report to find out how dangerous the mine dumps can be. I've been have that problem of nose bleeding and eye problems and my skin and short breath. And you said your kids also have had some health problems. Yes, especially the small one. He still have that problem of skin and nose bleeding. We can't say that any of the consequences experienced at Tudor Shaft will happen near the mining sites in the Karoo. But the history of mining in South Africa is full of environmental degradation and huge costs to workers and communities. Sylvia and Mariette's organization estimates that 1.6 million people live in these so-called catchment areas, where the dangers of uranium and other contamination directly affect their health. But maybe in the Karoo, things will be different. No accidents will happen, no corners will be cut, and the radioactive waste will be stored safely in the ground until it's no longer dangerous. And maybe no uranium will make it into the rivers. And maybe there'll be enough water for both mining, people, and the sheep. If we imagine that, the best case scenario where nothing goes wrong, and then look at the other side of the equation, what can be gained? According to an article on the ENCA website from March 2016, Tusman and Lukisa JV Company, the two local subsidiaries of Australian mining giant Peninsula Mining, have spent 100 million US dollars. So they must be expecting to make some profit. But from where? According to Vladimir Slivyak, uranium mining is not good business, not at the moment. In general, prices are very, very low. Fundamentally, we cannot see any single reason why would uranium market get up again and grow. But where then will the money come from? Governments uh, who interested to develop nuclear power, they would usually organize a lot of different schemes to subsidize nuclear power the way that you wouldn't see. Uh, what is happening also in Russia is that governments subsidizing nuclear power in many very different ways, all somehow hidden in the state budget. If Vladimir Slivak is right, some of the profits on uranium mining will be a consequence of the nuclear deal between Russia and South Africa, and thus part of a much larger and more complicated system of rewards. But the deal is a topic for another podcast in this series, so we won't go into detail on that here. But what we will look at is what the community and the town of Beaufort West can gain. And the one thing that everybody wants, more than anything else, is a scarce commodity in South Africa today. Many workers across a number of sectors fell into the sea of unemployment. Sectors that experienced a fall in worker numbers included mining and quarrying, construction, manufacturing and transport. Stats SA puts the official unemployment rate at just below 25%. More than one third of all young people are unemployed in Beaufort West and Tasman has promised to bring a thousand jobs to the town. 
But looking closely at that number, it quickly becomes clear that the deal isn't quite as attractive as it seems. Firstly, three quarters of the promised jobs are in construction and therefore has a time limit. The estimation is that the building process will take a maximum of three years. That leaves 250 jobs for an estimated 17 years for the first phase of production. But there's no guarantee of how many of these jobs will actually go to the locals. A number of them are reserved for experts or skilled workers from outside. How many remains undisclosed. Aside from this, there are no studies to show how many already existing jobs will be lost because of the mining operations. For example, in the agricultural sector, when farms will close down. The new mayor of Beaufort West is called George Malloy, and our reporter visited him to get his opinion. You don't sound as convinced as what I heard your predecessor as, as mayor was like. Uh, are you in doubt? No, 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 no. Don't uh, quote me wrongly or understand me wrong. I, 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 I have to have a neutral position at this stage so that I, that, 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 that council basically can have a, 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 a opinion where they listen to both sides. George Malloy spends 30 minutes finding an impressive number of ways to explain how both sides has pros and cons. He's a man in a position that's hard to envy. He's a member of the Democratic Alliance, who in Parliament is against the nuclear deal. But here in Beaufort West, council and local interest want those jobs and development. At the end of the day, it isn't George's decision. Mining rights are granted by the Department of Mineral Resources and must be approved by the National Nuclear Regulator. And here, Program Manager Patle Mohajane says they're still waiting for companies to submit environmental assessment reports. Yeah, you see, at this moment, I cannot judge whether um, mining can happen there or not while we don't have information in front of us because we don't know what the technologies that they are going to use and amount of water, etc. At this moment, it would be very difficult for me to say on top of my head, I can say yes or no, the mine can take place there. As the NNR is waiting for its reports, the investments in the Karoo continue. Meanwhile, government and ESCOM are pushing on the nuclear procurement deal, but the opposition is also picking up. For example, in front of Parliament, where protesters regularly gathered to protest against the nuclear deal, and now also uranium mining in the Karoo. Away with nuclear away! What's your name? Neville Sonwabo van Roy. And uh, where are you from? I'm from the Great Karoo, town called Marisburg. Okay, and uh, why are you standing in front of Parliament uh, on a quite early, quite windy morning here? Yes, we're demonstrating against nuclear because they uh, have decided to uh, come and mine uranium in our area, which is nuclear related. Don't you want jobs? Yes, we want jobs. Yes, we want development. 
but how can you uh, say you create you're going to create jobs at the expense of other jobs that will be will be completely destroyed uh, referring mostly to our farm workers who's working on farms if uh, uranium mining must happen there it will destroy our water it will destroy our, our environment and the people will eventually lose their jobs on the farms In the Bosman tradition, the water is very sacred. Yes. You are my son. When it is time for me to leave this world, I, say, I take you to the dating and I say to you, my son, you need to look after this water. So, that is why water is so sacred. Because it was the only thing that was given over from generation to generation. Not the land. Not the land, the water. You have been listening to the third of the four-part Sound Africa series, Nuclear SA. Next week's episode is called Countdown. It's a look into the future and a recipe on how to create or avoid disaster. As always, you can find this and all our other podcasts on soundafrica.org. You can also find out how to subscribe and never miss an episode. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for updates about everything we do. If you like what you heard, give us a review in iTunes. Somehow, that makes it easier for everyone else to find us. You can also just tell your neighbor about us. This podcast is made possible with support from the Heinrich Bull Foundation, Southern Africa. You can learn more about their work on za.boell.org. It is produced by Dashan Moodley, Ryan Brown, and Rasmus Bitsk, who also did the editing. My name is Sheba Melissa Mazaza. Thanks for listening.